You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week I'm talking to director Mariel Heller. Her new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me, is in theaters now with a fantastic leading performance from Melissa McCarthy. It's one of the best films of the year. We talk about what Heller was looking for after her debut feature, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and a whole lot more. So sit tight. This is Playback. He does this so he can shoot it really fast, but that's... They they had me, like, put it fully sideways. That's really odd. They're so sensitive, the, like, keys are really sensitive, so they don't want to shoot it. I've never seen that. Interesting. That's funny. That's cool. When was that? It was last week. No. It was Scott Simon for a weekend edition. It was pretty exciting. Nice. Scott Simon again. Awesome. All right, so you're good there. Dan's going to get out of your hair. <laughs> well, I'm here today with Marielle Heller, the director of Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, and we were just talking about Telluride briefly. I'm always curious. Uh, this was your first Telluride experience, it right? Was. So, yeah. you know, what did you think of the festival this year? I thought it was amazing. I felt like it was this magical wonderland of cowboys and movies. Um, it's just so beautiful there. You can't believe how beautiful you are, the place is. I. I've been to Sundance a lot of times. Sundance is my creative festival home in many ways. So I don't know. Tell you right, felt like maybe what Sundance was when it first started. It yeah. feels like a small town. I brought my family, my kid, and my son, and I, it was just a really neat festival. Yeah, it's great because it's not like a paparazzi vibe. You know, you go to Toronto a week later, and it's completely different. Totally different. Yeah. yeah it. I know. You kind of can't imagine what it was like. I, I couldn't picture what it was going to be like until I got there, and I was like, oh, I understand why so many people say this is their favorite <laughs> festival. Yeah. It's so cool. Were you able to see movies while you were there? I only saw a few. I got to see my friend David Lowry's Old Man in the uh, Gun. Yeah. Um, I was mostly going around and doing Q&As. That's the hard thing about going to a festival with your own movie. It's, yeah. it's hard to see other people's movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would have loved to see more. Well, this movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me? We were joking earlier, another long title. I know. I know. Uh, after Diary I don't know of a Teenage how that Girl. Happened. Well, it works. And I love the movie. Uh, that was that was my first time seeing it, the premiere there, and I saw it again last night. Um, you got a lot of stuff I want to ask you about the aesthetic and stuff as well. But first of all, I'm curious about coming off of Diary of a Teenage Girl. Yeah. What were you looking for? It was really hard. I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure when you've made a movie that was, you know, for Diary, I'd been working on it for eight years. It was my total passion project. It was something I had been fighting and scraping by trying to make for so, so long. And it's sort of, and I was so proud of it. And how do you follow up something that's been that kind of project for you? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's sort of the sophomore slump a lot of people talk about, and particularly for women filmmakers, the statistics show women take a lot longer to make their second movie. So I was really aware of the fact that I didn't want to fall into that mm-hmm. trap of taking too long to make something Why is else. That? What do you, I is think there... it's just the systemic sexism of our business that women can make a really great first movie and have less opportunities come their way for their second movie. Um, and so, but the, yeah, I feel like the average, I'm going to, 
I don't know if these stats are still true, but the average for a man who's made a first feature was like three to four years, and for a woman it was like seven to eight years mm. for their second feature. So I was aware of the fact that I was getting really great opportunities and offers coming my way, and I really wanted to make sure I made something. I loved making my first movie, and I realized I really liked directing. So, But I knew I didn't want to make another teenage movie. I was getting sent a lot of stuff that was all about teenagers. Yeah, they want to try to put you, pigeonhole you. In the box, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and um, so that was a tricky thing of like, okay, but what what do I want to say about sort of the movies I want to make from here on out? And figuring out what I wanted to make second felt like a lot of pressure of like, you're you're setting off on sort of a path of who you're going to be as an artist. Um, And Anne Carey, who was one of my producers from Diary, sent me the script for Can You Ever Forgive Me? And she's somebody I love and respect a lot. And I knew Nicole Holof Center and love and respect her a lot. And then Melissa was, at the time, maybe interested in the script. So it was the opportunity to work with all of these smart, interesting women who mm-hmm. want to make m- cool movies. And so immediately I was intrigued. And then when I read the script, I was so taken by Lee as a character. I just loved her. I found her to be such an asshole if I can say that on here (laughs) in a way that like we tend to see male characters who are assholes like that and Mm -hmm. we don't get a lot of women characters like that Mm -hmm. and I found her refreshing everything about her was so she says everything that comes into her mind and cares so much more about her intellect than her looks Mm -hmm. and I I just found her to be a character we don't focus movies on a woman over 50 a lesbian who is a cat lady basically (laughs) and who you know, I, she's not very glamorous. She's never had kids. She doesn't fit into sort of what the industry norm is for women at the time. And I just found her fascinating. So I immediately got excited about it. That's an interesting point about, uh, you know, what seems to be acceptable of, of leading ladies. I mean, yes. uh, yeah, there's a couple of examples this year, like Carrie Mulligan in Wildlife is a good mm. example. It's a messy character. It's yeah. not something you would, you you know expect i guess based on what seems to be accepted but right. uh, there's that there's like nicole kidman and uh and destroyer, and destroyer as yeah. well so we're finally starting to show a wider range of women characters yeah. in a way that we've always had this wide range of male characters it's almost like if you get female filmmakers uh, making the movies you'll get that isn't that interesting <laughs> who would have thunk <laughs> Uh, did you relate to Lee Israel at all? Like writer to writer, the yeah, struggle, all yeah. of that? Like... Definitely. I think a big pet peeve of mine is writers in movies because I feel like there's always there's always this trope which is, oh, you're struggling to write and then all of the sudden inspiration hits and it just pours out of you and it's this like cosmic um, divine <laughs> moment when the truth of the matter is writing is struggling and writing is painful and... I always love it when people are more honest about just how hard and horrible writing can be. Even yeah. though I love writing, it is soul-crushing as an experience and as a lifestyle. And so to have a character who is actually expressing the sort of soul devastation that happens when you're in a place in your life where your writing is not going the way that you want it to be going, I totally related to and I found to be really honest and was something that I tried to really highlight in the movie too, yeah. in an honest way, what it really feels like to be a... And especially to be a writer who um, identifies so much with her writing that like she views herself through her writing and wants other people to view her mm-hmm. through her writing. So it's it's not just... It's her identity. It's an extension of it's her. It's an yeah, extension absolutely. of her. So to be in a place where that's not being recognized and where people are 
sort of shitting on the, what she wants to write or what she finds interesting. It's it's such a devastation. I I've, I I related to that and felt like that was important to be honest about. Yeah. So it's got to be a hard thing to figure out how to visualize too, you yeah. know, in a visual medium like this, and carry that across, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's only so many times you can cut to a, like a POV <laughs> shot of the blank page yeah. at a typewriter. <laughs> um, we did a lot of kind of subtle things with sound design too around the typewriter because, well, we had all of these old electric typewriters and non-electric typewriters, but her typewriter that was her typewriter had this sort of hum, mm. which. The moment we turned it on, the, yeah. the actual prop on, we all commented on this hum, <laughs> and we really sort of used that hum as this sort of pressure cooker, like when she's staring at it and the hum is sort of subtly rising in tone <laughs> to kind of just show how much pressure she feels in that moment. Yeah. No, whenever you first see the typewriter, actually, I feel like it's, that shot stands out to me every time. Like, yeah. It, it does seem like this contraption of note. Yeah. Yeah. The typewriters are sort of their own character in the movie because we have so many. We have all for every every different literary person that she forges from Dorothy Parker to Noel Coward to Edna Ferber, Louise Brooks. They each have their own typewriter Mm -hmm. and with like a little note card with their name on it based on sort of historically what they would have been writing on. And slowly over the course of the movie, she gets like 25 typewriters (laughs) littering her apartment with all these different ones. But that was really fun getting to sort of figure out who would be with which typewriter. What diligence on her part. Yes, <laughs> right? totally. I mean, it's almost ab- it is admirable, it I is. would say. She was meticulous about it all. Yeah. yeah. She also kept copies of all of her forgeries, which she really shouldn't have done. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help the case, yeah. No. Did you, uh, were you aware of much of this? No. Did you kind of learn? Like most people, I didn't know anything about Lee. I yeah. think that's part of what's so interesting about her, too, is she in her time was pretty overlooked even yeah. you know a lot of people who i would bring her up to would say oh i remember her obituary like she, <laughs> right. i remember hearing about her forgeries in her new york times obituary and which is a sad state of kind of her career and the fact that she didn't get the recognition she really deserved but um i didn't know much about her until i read the script and then i just got so excited and we had a, we had access to a lot of research and a lot of her personal papers and and Carrie knew Lee, so uh-huh. she had gotten a lot of stuff before she died, and I was able to go through all of her personal notes and get to know her in a different kind of way. Yeah, I want to talk about the look of the film. I love the lighting in the movie. Yeah. Uh, it's such a it's a cozy movie. Yeah, you know, like it's, winter. It's, yeah, and and you know, I feel like you were bouncing around my old neighborhood. Was there Upper East Side stuff going Upper on? Upper East Side, yeah, Upper yeah. West mostly, and then some yeah. downtown where Julius is, which is the oldest gay bar in New York. Yeah, we. We talked a lot about the lighting before we started filming Brandon Trost, who's my cinematographer, and I, and that we wanted it to feel like we were filming in all these old bookstores, and we wanted it to feel like their windows had been painted shut 20 years ago. There there was 20 years of dust floating around the air, Mm -hmm. but that warm feeling of being in a bookstore when it's snowing outside, Mm -hmm. and there's that specific winter light Mm -hmm. coming through the windows with dust Keep expecting like a uh, like coffee steam to waft into the frame. Totally, or like it's that. all yeah. a little bit coffee steamed. <laughs> the whole movie kind of has a bit of a coffee stained feel to it. Yeah. All these old, you can kind of smell the books. I feel like when yeah. you watch the movie, like you can. I feel like you can smell our apartment too whenever you, well, they clean yes, it up. I'm sorry for that. You can. I know. It's, it's, Even it's, though I yeah. 
not no spoilers, but even though I know that that's Play-Doh, it still gets <laughs> like I feel like I can smell it too when I watch I think it. It's the sound when it hits the trash can yeah. adds to it too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you have any like references, uh, visually speaking, like anything, that, anything you were looking to emulate at all, like that? Filmically. Filmically, um, anything really, artwork, photographs. I mean, we definitely looked at a lot of lesbian writers from the 70s and 80s to kind of establish Lee's look. There weren't a ton of photographs of Lee in her natural habitat. Like the only photos we could find of her were like when she got dressed up for a book jacket photo shoot or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it didn't feel like a real indication of her style. And we kind of wanted to, we wanted to root her in this very New York literary world. Mm -hmm. Um, We gave her sort of a lot of masculine clothes and it was really character based, like trying to figure out how she held herself in the world and how she kind of pushed her way through the world and what, what that would feel like. Um, and I don't know, I'm terrible whenever anyone asks me like, what movies did you watch as inspiration for this? <laughs> Cause obviously like you see a New York movie and everyone thinks of like early days, Woody Allen. It's yeah. hard not to, it's yeah. hard not to think about Manhattan and other movies like that. Um, but we were also just looking at movies from the early 90s and trying to make sure we were making something period-wise that actually felt tuned into the filmic world back mm-hmm. then, too. In many ways, we felt like we were making an old movie. Like, it mm-hmm. was more of a movie from the 70s or 80s because mm-hmm. it's so character-based and not really in the style of, that yeah. we make movies right now. Yeah, it has its own look as a New York movie very much, I think. Yeah. And also regarding just rooting it in the time, you know, it's you know, the Paul Simon song, that's from like yeah. 1990, right? So it's yeah. right around the same time, Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. kind of cool. Can't run, but yep. I love it. Yep. I love that song, and I love that... I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but I picked that song because it's a song I've always really loved, and... Since we put it in the movie and he agreed to let us put it in the movie, which was such a big deal, he's been like playing that song again. Oh, really? And my friend went to his concert in Pittsburgh and <laughs> he played it and then he played it on SNL. I was like, oh, yeah, oh that's right. yeah, I think yeah. this song is having a resurgence, maybe in a small part. Do I think you can take credit. Movie? You can take credit. Uh, it's a great song because it kind of, it's such a great, like, out about town kind of song. Yeah, it's got a movement yeah, to it. Yeah. It feels almost like score when it starts, and it it has these like maletas that kind of play at the beginning and mm-hmm. instrumentation that we had been using in our score too. So that mm-hmm. when it when we slipped it in, it kind of actually felt like it was already part of our world. Yeah, exactly. It, what you always hope to have happen. Yeah. Let's talk about Melissa McCarthy. Uh, she's outstanding. I think it's her best performance uh, to date. I, I guess uh, what kind of quality was of the utmost importance in an actress for this role. It's so interesting because I think it was all about her being able to approach this character without judgment, to find the ways in and to um, be willing to be vulnerable. I say vulnerable, but Lee is not vulnerable in the way she presents in the world. She's a very guarded person, very different energy from Melissa. Melissa's like this light bubbly glowing human like she has the opposite qualities when she walks in a room to what lee has because lee is like this she has the weight of the world she like walks through the world like a boulder or something she kind of she walks like she has a rain cloud on top of her head a bit and um kind of make sure you know about it too yeah she does (laughs) and so it was really about whether Melissa could kind of 
get into that skin of Lee and feel what it is to be walking through the world like that and yet still feel connected to her heart because we had to be able to feel why she was so guarded and what was causing her to walk through the world with that level of armor on. And um, she immediately understood Lee in a really nice way. I think we both agreed about who she was and we enjoyed her as a character in the same kind of way. Um, And she didn't seem scared of her. She didn't seem to judge her. Um, it was very similar to when I first met with Alexander Skarsgård to talk about his his part in my first movie, Diary. It was so important that he wouldn't judge the character and mm-hmm. could find the humanity in a character that could otherwise seem judged by the world. And it, I just find it really important when we're telling stories that we're not trying to we're not trying to editorialize. We're really just trying to present somebody's truth and their mm-hmm. heart and let them be and let show their behavior in a way that makes us more connected to them without kind of telling the audience how to feel about them. Yeah. So Melissa just blew me away. I mean, every day she came so prepared. She was word perfect. Like every word of the script exactly as written. No improv, no improvisation unless we kind of had talked about it ahead of time. Like, oh, this little thing we could add on a few lines here or there. But in general, it was like we were on the script and she was so in love with Lee's voice and the way that she talked that she didn't want to change it by kind of bringing in her own, you know, Melissa-isms. So it was really about, like, honoring who Lee was and the way she would have walked through the world. She's got some great line deliveries, though. Oh, my God. She's still so funny. (laughs) It's just, it's a very specific, dry sense of humor. I mean, the the one that comes to my mind... my, I just burst out laughing at it last night. Was uh, well, that's bat shit, Marjorie? Yeah, Marjorie, right? Marjorie, yeah. yeah. Jane just Curtin's the way dead. she says it. Well, that's bat shit, Marjorie. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's fantastic. I know. And there's when she, uh, even when she says to Jack, when he goes, "It's very hard to find a boyfriend at my age. I'm losing my hair." She goes, "I don't think that's the reason." <laughs> In this way, that's like kills me every time. She's awesome. Well, the same question kind of for Richard E. Grant. Um, like, what was the the utmost importance? What quality did you need out of an actor playing Jack? And obviously chemistry is a huge part of yes. this. And they have amazing chemistry. They have amazing chemistry. On and off camera. Absolutely. <laughs> they are such a delight together. I love yeah. them. I love that this movie has sparked, I think, a real friendship that will last. Um, you know, Richard has just this effervescent quality to him. It's the opposite of Lee. Jack needed to be, like, so filled to the brim with life. And Lee, like, lives in the past. She's so caught in her uh, what could have been and the pain of her situation. And (laughs) Jack's situation is in many ways more dire, but he's totally happy and content and Mm -hmm. not thinking about anything but the present moment. Mm -hmm. And I had been a a fan of Richard since With Nail and I and just find him to be infectious like he is just an infectious person you want to stare at him and he's so i don't know he's just willing to go to these places that are so wonderfully silly and full of life and he's got no self-consciousness i feel like he's just really present and raw he puts it out there for sure he puts it out there yeah and, I mean, when he shows up in the movie, some, one of my friends put it to me. She was like, God, he sparkles. <laughs> I was like, it's true. He comes on screen That's and it. sparkles. And um, 
So I made the character British. He hadn't the real Jack Hawk wasn't British, but I knew I wanted it to be Richard and um and and I really kind of it actually was important to me to sort of flesh out his character even more than it had been in the previous drafts, but um giving him both this effervescent loving life quality, but also that he was set in the context of the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. that he's a gay man in 1991 in New York. That stuff was lacking in the original. Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a storyline that was was in the in the script when I came on board, but it was something that I had read the book and knew that the real Jack Hawk had died of AIDS. And it felt really important to me if we're making a movie about a lesbian and a gay man in 1991 in New York that we don't ignore mm-hmm. the fact that it's in AIDS you know, that they're in the midst of the AIDS crisis. And that in many ways, those two communities had been so separate and were coming together in that moment of Mm -hmm. pain. A lot of lesbians were taking care of gay men who were dying. These communities were sort of leaning on each other in a new found kind of way. Um, And in so many ways, I loved that these were two people who, for very different reasons, had nobody left in their life. Mm -hmm. You know, that Lee had pushed everyone away. And I think the first line I added to the script was Richard's line where he says, I have no one to tell. All my friends are dead. Mm. Um, and he says it really lightheartedly. Yeah. But just that slight, that dichotomy for his character between this, you know, lightheartedness and the context with which he's surviving, mm-hmm. which is everyone he knows is dead. There's a reason yeah. they both meet each other. And then their their final meeting was really important to me. That was something that wasn't in the script that I sort of invented based on a line from Lee's book. There was a line in Lee's book where she said that she saw Jack one last time. She ran into him in a doctor's office. He was walking with crutches and she never said anything to him, but she had an urge to trip him. <laughs> and I took just that sentiment and wrote that final scene between yeah. the two of them, which I think... Perfect. In many ways, gives the sort of great context of their love story mm-hmm. and their relationship and the friendship, which I think is the basis of sort of the whole movie yeah. for me, at least. No, for sure. Yeah. I have a friend; he's a big with Nail and I fan. He got to meet Richard and tell you right. I've never seen that dude beam <laughs> so much. People who <laughs> love Richard love him to such a degree. Both <laughs> Melissa and Richard have rabid fan bases, but the lucky thing is they're also the kindest people who are so sweet to people that they meet and mm-hmm. are. It's so nice to see the way that they treat humans in the world. They're both really, really humble, normal people. Yeah. Yeah. And Richard is really funny because he smells everything. He, like, experiences (laughs) the world through his nose. So we'd walk into these old bookstores where we were filming, and the first thing he would do would just walk up to a bookshelf, pull out an old book, and just, like, (laughs) inhale its smell and then put it back or, like, push his face up against some wall and smell (laughs) the location. Wow. He's, he's a real hilarious, wonderful man. <laughs> well, I wanted to branch out a little bit uh, away from the movie. You're, you're currently shooting the Mr. Rogers film. Yeah, what's what's the title wrapped. of that film? Oh, it, you just wrapped. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's been called You Are My Friend. Right now, it's sort of in transition okay, what the title's going to be. We just keep calling it the Mr. Rogers movie. Might as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, what, what has that experience been like? What did you, uh, you know, in developing that, like, what did you learn about Fred Rogers that was surprising, maybe? Um, more things than I could possibly say. It's totally changed my life, spending the last year immersed in Fred Rogers' teachings and philosophy about the world. It's been such a privilege. I honestly, it's been one of the best experiences of my entire life. Um, 
I grew up with Mr. Rogers. I have a young child, and we've been watching Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. So I was pretty familiar with his sort of philosophy of kids, mm-hmm. um, but realizing that he just walked the walk, that it was an actual part of who he was as a person and his influence on the world was so profound, and everyone who came into contact with him was really kind of changed for the better by mm-hmm. knowing him. And the story is really not a biopic. It's about a journalist who, in interviewing him and getting to know him, really does change his life. Mm-hmm. And um, it's based on Tom Juno, who wrote a piece for him about es- on for Esquire, wrote a cover story about Fred. And I was talking to Tom about it recently, and he was saying, you know, after I met Fred, my writing changed. You can go into my work and see mm-hmm. my before Fred and my after Fred. It has a very different tone. I couldn't, I couldn't be mean. I couldn't, I couldn't see the world through a sort of cynical lens anymore. It really yeah. changed the way I wanted to write. And you've been shooting that in Pittsburgh. We've been in Pittsburgh for the last four months. Were you there when, when the uh, we were not weirdly. It was the one week we came to New York to do two days of filming, um, but we just and then we went back a few days later, and I just got back from Pittsburgh on Friday. I love that city. It's one of my favorite cities in the country. That city too, and I had never spent any time there until this last year. Um, I had no idea about the city. It's got some of the kindest, most down to earth people. It was such a wonderful place to make a movie. We were we were very rooted actually in the in the Squirrel Hill area, and that community has been incredibly kind to us. All of the people from the Fred Rogers Company and who worked with and knew Fred for a long time. His wife, Joanne, Bill Eisler, who was the head of his company for many, many years, are the people who've, like, welcomed us to Pittsburgh and made mm-hmm. us part of their family, and they all live in Squirrel Hill. So it was in, it was more painful than I can even explain. We got to be back there last week when there was a Unity event, and Tom Hanks flew in and um, spoke at it beautifully with Joanne Rogers, and we all went and halted filming so we could all go and be at the Unity event together and take a moment to kind of honor what was happening but it was very weird it was very weird to get to know a city so well be so in love with the city and feel like it was our new home and then leave and have this horrible tragedy happen that's what got me so much about it was knowing how much i love that city and then to see that disease kind of make its way there it was awful yeah and my family's jewish i obviously felt very connected Mm and my yeah my kid had been going to school three blocks away from that and Mm the entire time we were there. So it was really upsetting. I mean, I think it's upsetting for every single person in the world. Yeah. Um, but it felt particularly personal. Are you editing now? I'm about to start about editing. To start, okay. Yeah. So I really wrapped on Friday. We actually did a week of miniatures, which I, I don't know if you remember from the show, but Mr. Rogers had the whole miniature neighborhood yeah. where he would pull out from the little yellow house and see the trolley going by. <laughs> So we took that theme and expanded it in the movie, and we have oh, that awesome. plus. And we, so we did four days of miniature shooting, which was so fun. I bet. And, and Tom Hanks, I mean, and Tom perfect Hanks. choice. It's too bad he's, <laughs> nobody loves Tom Hanks. It's too bad he's such a bad actor. You have to turn some people around on this I one. I know. Hopefully. i got to convince them. I found this young upstart named Tom Hanks, and he's really great. No, he, working with Tom was amazing. He's so wonderful and he really embodied the spirit of Fred he's he just kind of understood him in a deep cellular level mm-hmm. um and it was really 
very cool to see. We also totally recreated the sets mm. from the show, like exactly perfect. Who's your production design? Jade Healy. Wow. And she, you was know, she just like. Oh, everybody was in heaven. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it was such, it felt like a huge responsibility, but it was also really exciting. And we shot in the actual stage where they shot the show. Mm. So we were in the actual place where Fred was for 40 years. Um, and a bunch of people who worked on the show would come in and visit and everybody would go. I mean, you would see everybody kind of gasp when they first walked in because they felt like they were walking back in time. And then people, a few <laughs> people said, it even smells right, which was really neat. <laughs> I had a friend in film school that uh, I think he worked on Mr. Rogers, like oh, in high one? school or something like that. Yeah, I uh, mean, pretty much everyone in Pittsburgh in the film community worked on the yeah. show at some point. Like, yeah. it, we had so many people who worked on the movie who had worked on the program. Um, one of our camera operators, who was we were shooting on old tube cameras for the show portion of the movie to really emulate what it looked like back then. That's and cool. He had been operating back then, and he was one of our operators and. You know. Pushing those giant things around. Yeah, pedestals. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. giant pedestal. We had exactly that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I also wanted to branch out. There's a couple of other projects uh, that that I've read your name attached to. Are, are you? Do you know what you're going to do next after Mr. Rogers? Or, or are you? I'm not someone who's that good at doing more than one thing at a time. Yeah. I kind of have to like. I just go so full all in on whatever it is that I'm working on, and um, it's even hard to be shooting a movie and promoting a movie at the same time i've never had to do that before but mm -hmm. like you know for two years can you ever forgive me was my whole world in mm -hmm. life and then it was done and i put it away and then it took a number of months before it came <laughs> out so then it's like now i'm all in on the mr rogers movie it's all i sleep breathe and dream pretty much you know these are all that you these 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 two movies that you've made the one you've got coming up mm -hmm. and and you know if you make it to these others they're all very different movies yeah. from what I can tell. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious, like, do you have, like, a personal mission statement going forward? Like, what are you interested in making going forward? I don't feel like I can – yeah, I, I don't know. It's – I until the Mr. Rogers movie, I felt like I just wanted to make movies about women because we just don't have enough of them. And mm -hmm. there are so many fascinating women whose stories I want to tell and whose voices I feel like need to be heard. Mr. Ro I keep saying Mr. Rogers was the one man who could pull me into making a movie <laughs> about men. Um but, you know, it's just about wherever your heart is at the current moment. And for me, right now, I've been so focused on raising my kid and thinking about the state of the world and where we are politically and emotionally and where we are, you know, thinking about Pittsburgh and the hate in the world and making a movie about kindness and about emotion and about people trying to be better mm -hmm. just felt right right now. And mm -hmm. who knows where we'll be in another year and what will feel right then. I'm sure that'll be a nice salve throughout yeah. all of that. So yeah. for now, everyone should check out uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? It is in limited release now. What's the wide date on that? It's like I think it's pretty 16th, soon. right? Yeah. I think it's the 16th. Yeah. It'll make it to you eventually, and you should see it. Uh, I'm sure it'll be up for many awards, as it should. Knock wood. And <laughs> knock wood. But uh, Mario Heller, thank you so much for coming thank on the show. Thank you. And it was about a joy. It. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I really appreciate it, too.